0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wanora people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present.
1: It's a really special place, and I just want to be a part of getting the story back out to the people, explaining to everyone what Mount Pleasant is, the significance of it. You know, getting people up here to enjoy it with me.
0: This is over a glass. I'm Shante Whale. Adrian Sparks has ignited plenty of energy at Mount Pleasant Winery. One of the most important wineries in the history of Australia, it speaks loudly to Sparks' talent and ability that he joins the legacy as the fifth chief winemaker. As someone who speaks his mind and never misses a clock off beer, I am thrilled to have Adrian Sparks join me today. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I'm really well. And I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast finally. So this is all about talking about you, Sparksy. all about your likes and dislikes. Do you like... Long walks on the beach. Are you that kind of guy?
1: (laughs) Oh, as long as it's quick. I can do it fast. No, not really. Uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. Let's start at the beginning. You were born at Griffith. Where did the journey of wine begin for you?
1: Um, Well, I was actually born in a little town called Narandra. Um, funnily oh. enough. Yeah, uh, and moved to Griffith. My grandparents lived on a station out there because they came over as 10 pound Poms. Um, my dad was actually born in England, so he came out. So we lived in Narendra for a while. Then probably moved to Griffith and in about 84, 85, showing my age. And then I remember sort of driving back and forth between Narendra and Griffith and, and looking down in the car really fast, looking down the rows of vines. And that sort of sparked a bit of an interest. But it wasn't until I suppose I went to university, was doing a chemistry degree and started meeting people that were doing wine science. And, you know, they sort of – I couldn't believe wine science was a degree, to be quite honest. Um, but they were really good people and good fun. And I think a good mate of mine who I played footy with, Joel Pazzini, gave me a bottle of wine for my 21st birthday and it was beautiful. And then I started working for McWilliams. Just as university holiday job, I was catching chickens um, at barters for the university holidays before that and then thought I needed to change something use my brain and so yeah took a job at McWilliams just casually waxing tanks and all those sort of things and yeah that's how it all sort of started really.
0: Wow well first off you've just shocked me by talking about chemistry I knew that you were a bit of a nerd but I didn't know you're that much of
1: <laughs> a little bit yeah I was very good <laughs> at maths and physics and chemistry and shocking with English and you can talking to me you can probably tell.
0: Not at all. That's amazing, and I could see. Well, I mean, yeah, why kind of wine science is a little bit of a shocking. You're like, is this a real thing? Did, is this actually something that we can do? But what do you what do you mean by you were catching chickens? What what what? <laughs>
1: uh, so I had to earn money during university holidays um, just to help fund my drinking habit, <laughs> and so I worked at Barters Enterprises. So that was one of the big. Um, industries out in Griffith at the time and they had casual labour and you just go out there and I think there was 36,000 chickens in a shed and there was a crew of 10 of us and you had to catch them all in a week um, and then that so they'd, that's where they were raised and they were taken back to the egg where they'd go, and, they'd go and change into a different shed where they'd collect the eggs.
0: Oh my gosh as a, a city person that just floors me that's amazing.
1: <laughs> 36 chickens running around you all day you end up with scratches and all sorts of things.
0: Uh, do you eat good. chicken now?
1: Uh, look, I'm a KFC lover, as you know. Um, <laughs> but I did go off it for a while. When you start dreaming about chickens, you know it's time to uh, for a change.
0: <laughs> I'm going to give you grief over that n- another time. <laughs> so uh, you also did a little bit of travel. So you also went over to France and did vintage over there. What was um, your time in France like, and what did what did that teach you, you were in the um you're in the ore department, weren't you? That in Le mou yeah in Limoux
1: I did a, I did a trip with Boot Barrel Company in 06 it was the first time I went to France and that was a good and I had never been over I'd never been overseas before so it was my first trip and then I got a gig with um Dark, which is a big cooperative the major sparkling cooperative down in southern France I think they're about 22,000 tunnels, something which is quite big um, and that was really good they've very automated some of the systems they had but I got to work on this program where they had so for charity, for the town, they have all these individual plots of Chardonnay, and then they would for two acres, I think, everyone produced two acres of the best Chardonnay they could. So they cropped it right down, manipulated. So all the rest of the vineyards were cropped quite high because it's a big high-producing area for sparkling. But then this little patch, they made the best possible Chardonnay. And so I think there was like sixty-eight growers, and they all had four barrels or four barriques of Chardonnay, and that was my first stint overseas it was amazing and they're very different to australian wine as in you know we're very analytical um lots of testing etc whereas they just press the juice in the barrel check the NTU and let it rip really there was no acid adjustments there was no yeast yeah very very different but good to understand how they did it and good to get a sort of outsized perspective and you know, things to utilise, you know, further down the track when I took over the Chardonnay production at McWilliams.
0: Mm, yeah, the simple life of uh, just see, popping it in, and see how it, how it goes. Um, that kind of makes sense, though. Is that where your love or your love affair of Chardonnay kind of started?
1: Yeah, it well, was sort of in and around there. I sort of got sort of thrown the gig by default really at McWilliams in about 05, 06 when they were shutting down the site so that all the premium wines were done at a little site called Yenda and so then all the mage production was done out at the bigger winery at Hamwood. And I worked at Yender my whole career virtually until they shut the site down in 08. And there was no one who said to do it, so I just jumped in on the Chardonnay. Um, so we did, you know, all through Tumbarumba, the Yarra Valley through Lilydale. I got to work on all that. So it was probably 04... So, 2004, we started in Tumbarumba, So, I was assistant winemaker then. Um, and then it transformed into the eight four two that we made there. And just – that was all I did, really, was Chardonnay um, for maybe, you know, seven years. until it's that's all I made, really, was Chardonnay. Um, and so, yeah, tasting wines, got to go. We bought Evans and Tate in 2005. So, got to go over and do tastings with Matt Byrne over there at Evans and Tate. Um, but, yeah, just get to see Chardonnay. That's, that's – Everything everything I drank, everything I read about, you know, everything I made was just Chardonnay.
0: Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, your Chardonnays are fantastic, but they are such a pleasant... Wine to drink all the time, and they're so different wherever you are. I can imagine how different it must have been to be over in, in WA and looking at their clones and what they do over there and their climate, which is completely different. You, you touched on the fact that you joined McWilliams in 1998. Is that right? And then you joined the winemaking team at Mount Pleasant in 2014.
1: Yeah, I think 98 was my first year as a vintage – well, not really vintage. I did holidays. So, 99 was my first vintage. I joined about November ninety eight. Yeah, washing tanks, filling barrels, cleaning floors, cleaning tanks, just all the usual um, stuff. And I really, you know, I'd done three years at university and I wasn't getting very far with my degree in terms of us having too much fun playing football, drinking. So I thought I'd better settle down, do my degree by distance and then just start working and find something that I really love doing. And, and wine was good. There was heaps of winemakers there. Um, at the time, Russell Cody was one who you probably know, uh, but he was very good. We played footy against each other. I used to smash him all the time, but uh, he he was good in terms of he's very down to earth, and he would just explain things to you in a way that made sense, and you could apply that. And he said something along the lines of, you know, he had like fifty barrels all different barrels of the same wine in it. And he asked me to get a blend out one day and he said, I want that barrel, that barrel, that barrel, that barrel. And I said, Well, why don't you just put them all in the same barrel? Then it's easier. And he goes, Well, they're all different. Every it's all the same wine, but every barrel makes a different wine and it's blending those different barrels to make this greater wine. Which was probably the light bulb moment, I suppose, for me. And I went, Well that's pretty cool. And then it was just – it sort of just escalated from there. I couldn't taste the difference between Simeon and Chardonnay and Riesling or anything, but they were just white wines on the bench. But they'd call you in and do tastings. Um, you know, Mick Williams offered to put me through university, so I jumped at that, um, to change, obviously to change over to wine science. And then, it yeah, just got really involved in it. And I don't know, when you're young and keen and you're just jumping into everything and wanting to do as much as you can and, you know, the annoying kid that asks questions, but – you know that's what it was and just access to fruit like working for a big company we made fruit you know we made wines from wa eden valley McLaren Vale, barossa and yarra tumbarumba hilltops orange like right. everywhere um so you got to see a lot vintages were hectic so you, vintages would go three or four months but you the experience you got in that vintage was you know you couldn't get it anywhere else i suppose
0: yeah what what do you mean remember a time where you i mean you talked a little bit about looking at you know talking about the different barrels and having that light bulb moment? do you remember a time where you realized that you know McWilliams and Mount Pleasant was a really big deal in terms of the scope of Australia and your kind of first impressions of working for a company that meant something as opposed to how that's changed over time now um, i i
1: having not come through the wine industry as a youngster, I I didn't get or appreciate the scale, the size, you know, the history or anything like that. I had to learn it all on the job. So, you know, McWilliams were just a a winery. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know what they produced. Uh, I didn't understand the history until I started working for them and, and, you know, working alongside um, the winemakers, the family, Doug McWilliams there, you know, and just talking to them. And they would tell you about stories about their granddad or, other people and then you started going oh that's interesting and back in time number of years and then then you'd you'd go to like wine shows back before you were judging but just to do the tastings and meet other winemakers from different regions and you'd ask their story and they'd tell you their story and then you can see all these links you can see how all these regions back in the day were helping each other out and working together I suppose and then I didn't Understand the significance of Mount Pleasant, I suppose, until sort of Phil Ryan would come down for tastings, um, and everyone would sort of line up to taste Lovedale, and and then I think one of the, I can't remember who it was, maybe, well, might have been Codes or someone back in the day, sort of just explained what Mount Pleasant was and how important it was. And that's shit. That's pretty, yeah. You know, that's significant for the Australian wine industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean. I can imagine there's so many working parts and like you said, it's a big company, there's so much going on. And, and unless, you know, you kind of have somebody that as a mentor or, or or you have somebody that's followed the Australian wine industry for a long time, it's hard to, um, to really, uh, appreciate or, or, or gather that kind of scope when you are in, you know, in your kind of younger years, I suppose, but we have to talk about Maurice O'Shea because, you know, it's got to be done. Um, I was going to mention that the wine Hunter, which is, uh, an amazing book by Campbell Madison, you actually gave it to me and it's incredible read. It's the life story of Australia's first great winemaker. Um, is definitely a good place for anyone to start. But can you tell us a little bit about Maurice O'Shea's legacy and what that means to you and, and what it's brought to your experience?
1: Yeah. Um, I sort of only really learnt about Maurice O'Shea when I came to Mount Pleasant. I'd heard his name. I'd read The Wine Hunter. Um, and it's funny, we just had Campbell Matinson up here a, a month or so ago because we're getting him to redo the book um, because... We've sold out, I suppose, I and mean, we need. We want more copies. We want to share that story because it's such a good story. I suppose it's it's his ability to pick sites, um, you know, well before anyone else. Um, you know, other people in the valley were here, but he sort of came in and, and saw the old hill for what it was and realised the old paddock right next to it had so much potential. I mean, it's perfectly sheltered. It's, you know, arguably, you know, the the best site. In the in the valley for its protection from the afternoon winds and sun, it's just an unreal sort of backdrop for grape growing. And then to be able to look at Lovedale and, and realise the potential there, to see Rose Hill for what it was, um, and nail those sites. You know, he was the first person to, you know, begin working with refrigeration. I mean, throwing ice blocks into the tanks is probably frowned upon now, but you know he understood what it meant and ha- ha- what the impact it had on the wines going forward, I suppose. Um, yeah, so it was all those little things that he did. Um, yeah, and we don't know how he did it. Um, there's not a lot of records kept. I think Brian Walsh, who, who was put on as winemaker after him, only got to work with him for one vintage. So it's sort of you get to taste the wines and they're freaks, Um you know, I've had some a few lucky enough, a few of his wines, and they just open up so beautifully. And it's amazing that they're you know seventy, oh, I don't even know, probably older than that nowadays. Year old wines, they're just amazing. And and to be able to be able to pick his brain and say, how did you do that? What did you do? How did you pick it? What, what? All those questions. Um, try, or trying to work it out anyway. Um, yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it must be, I mean, there's, I suppose that little bit of mystery around it is is what was he thinking at this time and where did he get his ideas from? I mean, what I love about that book is that it doesn't just tell you um, about Maurice O'Shea, it really puts you in his world. And so you can kind of imagine what life was like going about at that time. And I think that maybe that is, you know, yeah, like I said, the mystery of it all, of how, how was this person so ahead of his time. And, and what was he thinking when he was making these wines? And they, they are transportive. um, So pretty incredible. But you work with some amazing uh, estate, uh, esteemed um, sites now that that he established. So talk a little bit about Old Hill, Old Paddock, um, Lovedale and Rose Hill. And, and is there a particular site that you look forward to working with every year? Yeah. Um, look, he probably got his
1: just, just to go back on it, I mean, being thrown on a boat when you're 15 years old to go to France by yourself back in 1915, I suppose, would be pretty daunting. And then over to France to do your university. I mean, that, that's a pretty amazing thing. And then lecturing at a university when you're so young. I mean, I don't know. Crazy, yeah, crazy. Anyway, back to vineyards. Sorry, I was just.
0: <laughs> I don't know at fifteen, totally. I mean, what I was doing at fifteen, I don't know. I don't even think I knew my right arm, my left leg. Like I, had, I wouldn't have had a clue. It's pretty, pretty unique, and and it, it does make me think, uh, what are we doing with our children today? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly, it's very different. Um, I suppose sites, them. They're all. I mean, Lovedale was the one back in back in when I started out early. Lovedale was you know, the pinnacle for Mount Pleasant, who was always, the whites are always the strength here. But I think over time that's changed, um, that the, the Reds are now getting the acclaim they deserve. Um, they, they are some beautiful sights. The Old Hill um, is a pretty freaky vineyard in in terms of, it's almost like, not a set and forget, but it, it, it sits there and it can handle... The, the heat waves, it can handle the wet ears, uh, you know, through 2016, which was a shocker, the fruit off it was amazing, clean. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it throws its fruit load every year. It's the same, you know, exactly what you're going to get off it. Um, uses, you know, a third of the water of anything else around the place. Um, it, and it it has this character that's very, very unique. And you can pick it in a lineup. So if I line all that wine up, you can just go, well, that's the old hill you can start cancelling, working out what the other ones are. It's a bit of a amazing – and that was sort of the one that I loved when I first came up here. Um, these days, though, I mean, you know, I, was, I don't know. I moved to the Hunter Valley to work with Rose Hill. I, I came – I did a tasting up here in 2012 um, with Chato and Higo and Scotty Mack and some. there was a few – someone else here. Yeah, we did a tasting and all these wines are blind and I went through and went – I like that, 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 that. And they were just all un, un or unrevealed, I suppose is the word, and they were all Rose Hill. I went, shit, that's a good vineyard. I wanna work with that. And so it was sort of a bit of a focus of mine to look at Rose Hill and that's why I moved up here. But it's not so much a fair weather vineyard, but it's it in the great years, like like the fourteens, the eighteens and that, it it's for me it stands above. You know, everything else, it it is an amazing vineyard. I think consistency-wise, you know, Old Paddock, Old Hill, probably a bit more consistent. Um, But I like that. You know, I like – we set up our vineyards. We do everything to make the greatest wines we possibly can. There's no – consistency for me is, you know, I'd rather make the greatest wine I I can in one year and it'd be slightly poorer the following year, um, if it's a shit year, I suppose. Hmm. Um, I don't think I'm talking, doing it justice by saying that. Yeah. You know, for me, it's just about making the greatest wine you possibly can. That, that's that's what it is. Respecting the fruit, getting into the bottle. That, that's all I want to do.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's not necessarily an easy feat, but I've always loved when you speak about rose hill because I can tell the reverie that you have for, for the, the vineyard. I mean, it was planted in 1946, I think. Six? Is, am I pulling that out of my? No, no,
1: that's perfect. Yeah, forty-six, and then the second block was planted in sixty-five by Brian Walsh, and they're the best sites. Um, and they're they're amazing. Like the the fruit, I think in fourteen, the fruit off the sixty-five vines, I'd, I'd actually gone home, so I didn't get to see it picked. I'd come and did vintage in fourteen before moving up here, um, so I didn't get to see it picked, but it looked amazing, like un, unreal. No, the canopy was perfect, the fruit was perfect just the amount of light hitting the fruit zone like everything was just spot on and it's having that it's having that you know perfectness in the vineyard that lets you make great wines you can't polish a turd I suppose is the saying if you you need fruit to to be able to make those great wines and you know we're very lucky um, that we've got these vineyards.
0: I, I imagine I mean being that it's you know, planted so long ago that the yields are slightly lower. Do you ever get frustrated you can't make more, or is that part of the beauty that you can only have a certain amount of yields, and that's all that each year gives you? Um, I don't know. I think it
1: is what it is. I don't. I've never really thought about that, to be honest. Um, I, I you, you take what nature gives you. Um, you know, you set it up to give you the best quality fruit. And if that means a low, slightly lower yield, we went through all those drought years through 17, 18, 19 and, and didn't get much fruit off it. But the wines are amazing. Um, this year in 22, we had a fair bit of rain throughout October. And so the yields are slightly up, but the fruit quality is still outstanding. Like It's just one of those things where you, you, just, you just do your best to get what you get and don't get upset, I suppose. That's what I tell the kids.
0: Yeah, well that makes sense you're not wishing for anything that that you can't change it's what you give and you feel grateful for 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 that so you said that very well um, talk me through if you were to kind of like you said you can pick it in a lineup talk me through what makes Rose Hill in the glass so special because um, i I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time and I might as well do it uh, when I can record it but what, what just for you personally what is what is the beauty in Rose Hill through aroma and taste? Um, When
1: I first looked at it in that lineup, it had this floral violet red fruit note that I'd never seen anywhere before. So for me, it was unique. It was almost like a pomegranate-y, you know, I've always been shocking with my descriptors, um, but it has this floral lift, this aromatic, which defines it. And for me, making sure that's in the wine is you know that's that's what Rose Hill is all about. Um, red fruited, and the palate is this seamless, beautiful acidity, fine tannin structure, elegance, balance, um, you know, length. All all key attributes of great wines, and and it just has all that. And I, and I you know, I, I'm a Pinot drinker, a Shiraz drinker, medium bodied light-bodied wines that's what I love to drink and it it has elements of everything like it's always going to be that and it's just so appealing
0: very well said that was exactly what I wanted to hear and I love it thank you (laughs) I'll send you a bottle (laughs) Uh, you, you know that's been on record now so you're in trouble (laughs) Um, You're not going to like this next question, but since your time at the helm, you've had some incredible accolades. New South Wales Wine of the Year in 2018 and 2019, Hunter Valley Red Wine of the Year 2018-2019, Hunter Valley Winemaker of the Year in 2019. How does it feel to be achieving such huge heights uh, within the first years of being in charge? And have you peaked too early or is this just the beginning?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I cry myself to sleep, think I have peaked too early.
0: Um, look, you
1: get 18 and 19, or seven, it was actually 17 and 18 wines. Um, <laughs> put my spot here. Um, look up. I just came in, you know, worked with um, Chateau for a few years, understood, you know, the vineyards. You can't walk into a place and make impactful change straight away. You need to respect what's been happening in the past. And you look at it. Take stock, see what's see what you think is right and wrong. I learned off Jim for I think he was here he left at the end of '16, so three or four years, and understood the direction that we both sort of thought Mount Pleasant needs to go. And took all that in, watched what he was doing, and, it, and it's just minor tweaks here and there. I mean, Mount Pleasant historically through the, the 2000s were overwrote, That was the comments, but they were wines at the time. They were selling out every year. They were getting good scores. The o- o- two thousand O'Shea was beat everything I think that year in, in the holiday book. So, but I think oak is sort of a detractor, not a detractor. But it needs to be more in balance. It can't be the first thing you smell or taste. Um, and so it's just about backing that, backing that out, making sure we're using the right oak and respecting the vineyard. We were. You know, we bought a heap of little tanks to be able to keep everything separate. Um, You know, it was investment in the place that allowed those results. The the ability to be able to pick a block of wine when you want to pick it, instead of having to wait an extra day because the tanks are full or having to press something off early because you're picking this other block. Like, Like, having space, having the tank sizes, having the ability to pick... Having all the tool, tools at your disposal to be able to make the greatest wines is, you know, paramount to be able to do that. If, if you know, I know when Phil was making wines, his his smallest tank size was a ten tonner, so he'd have to pick the old paddock and chuck something else in on top of it. Whereas we we've got two tonners five tonners ten tunners, everything we need. We, you know, we can pick eight hundred kilos and ferment it separately now. So we're very fortunate. We can keep every block separate. We can. Minimize our oak. Have you can always add oak back in if if you think it needs it, but you know, reducing it, having fruit as the key, having you know, block characters defined, being able to see the unique sites in each of those wines, and then being able to showcase them in in the significant sites wines we have, you know, blending the best possible ocher we can, making rose every best barrel we possibly can, not just getting it thrown together um, in the vineyard is all super important. And, you know, the results, I think we had a great team through that time. Paul Harvey was the viticulturist then, you know, he did a great job. People in the winery, you know, you can't do it by yourself. Like, no, it's not. It's a reflection of, you know, the people at the time and the vineyards and the effort that everyone put in, really.
0: Yeah, very true. And, um, I mean, you're in such a good position now and and I hope that the vintages continue um, in the fashion of the the 18s and the 19s here on out. But um, I think, you know, it's in incredibly good hands. It's been 100 years since Leotano Shea purchased the Pocolton property. What's next for Mount Pleasant and what's next for Mr Adrian Sparks?
1: Um, All all I'm thinking about is I've peaked too early now. Thank you for that. Um, (laughs) What's next? Um, well, we've just well, – obviously, the McWilliams and Mount Pleasant split up last year, uh, May 2021, and were purchased by the Medich family, and there's been huge investment. Mainly, you know, the cellar doors, under being undergoing renovations, um, and it's, you know, almost ready to go a couple more weeks, um, and that'll be opened up to the public. I mean, th- th- that's going to be unreal. Um, the detail in that place – what it's going to offer is going to be huge. Um, Not just for Mount Pleasant, for the valley. Hopefully, you know, this side of the valley has always been tough to get people. It's a a bit of a drive to get to Mount Pleasant, but it's going to benefit not just us, but everyone on this side of the valley um, as a a place to come. It's going to be amazing. Just put a chef on, um, you know, and it's all those fine details about making that experience really, really good. But I think Mount Pleasant, you know, we've just, bought a new harvester we've bought you know the best sorting equipment you can for the winery i mean we've never had sorting equipment in the winery so all those wines that you spoke of earlier winning those trophies were just hand-picked in the vineyard and 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 sent through this huge fruit destroyer into tank now, now we can you know all whole berries everything's sorted out this optical sort of just pings at anything that's slightly deformed or slightly off colour, so it's only the best fruit coming through. So, you know, consistency of quality I think will increase. And, you know, hopefully those extra one percenters will drive our, you know, drive our quality up even more. In terms of myself, I have no idea. Um I I'll be here. Um look I just I've never thought about it. I don't really think about the past or the future too, too often, uh, which drives everyone around me insane. But, you know, I think, I don't know. I'll, I want to get Mount Pleasant back to where it was. It went through a few years of, you know, not the doldrums, I don't know, the hiatus, dormancy. Um, but there's, it's a really special place and I just want to be a part of getting that, getting this, this specialness or getting the story back out to the people, explaining to everyone what, Mount Pleasant is, the significance of it, um, you know, getting people up here to enjoy it with me. You know, you're welcome to come up whenever you've got a free day um, just to come up here, get out the vineyards, have a taste of a wine, understand why the wine looks like it does. and um, Go go to Rose Hill and stand in the vines and have a sip of the wine and you can explain. Once you're there and you can explain to someone why this wine looks like it is, it, it, it's you know that that can start a real domino effect of understanding and learning and wanting to know more about wine, which I think is really cool.
0: Absolutely, and look—it's funny because you said you don't think too much about the past or too much about the future, but I think that you do, and I think it's important that um, you touched on earlier a little bit about uh, oak usage in the wines and and the you know and being wines at the time, and I think that that's so important because I think it is whether or not you think that they're the trendiest wines now, it's so important to understand what was in demand and what people wanted and what was what was happening at that time to then move on. To, to something new. And I, I think about Chardonnay now and where we are in Australia with Chardonnay and we couldn't be at that place of restraint and poise and elegance without having that moment where we had these big, rich, clunky oak Chardonnay. So I kind of think that, you know, your um, understanding of what's happened in the past and where you're headed is something that maybe you don't consciously do, but subconsciously it's um, it's there. And I think that that is why you're in such a good position to take a Mount Pleasant to, the, to the next place wherever it may be and i'm so excited to see the um the new cellar door i'm scared because i actually love the little old cellar door i think it was really quaint and cute so um uh, but i'm really excited i'm sure that it's going to be um still have its little little quirks and uh should be really impressive and like you said bring more people there so that they can visit and taste the wines
1: yeah yeah look it's still the same shell it's just had a good paint
0: job. Perfect. And <laughs> we all need that yeah. sometimes. A, a,
1: a really good, really good paint job. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be amazing.
0: Awesome. Adrian, I ask everybody, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why?
1: Ah, um, I should have thought about this. I've listened to your podcast too, so I should have known this was coming. Um, look, I, th- I need a beer. Yes. Yeah, look, I need a beer at the end of the day, just one. Um, I drink lager. Um because I can't do IPAs and XPAs and all this sort of stuff. I am far too sensitive to bitterness, so they destroy me. Um, so a good lager, nice easy drinking lager. Pinot and Shiraz, I would say, would be my other two. Um, for reasons I think I've probably already stated, but yeah, I just think, you know, my interest in Pinot and Shiraz far outweighs. I mean, as I said, I was a Chardonnay lover since the dawn of time, but you know, I think That's right. do you need brands etc or just happy happy with that
0: you i'm happy with that i'm happy kind of thought that that's where it'd be but you never know people sometimes throw out random things and and you're not sure but I, i do have a question if you're not going to be drinking hunter shiraz what other shiraz would you be drinking um not as your last drink on earth but i mean if you if you're not drinking hunter shiraz where else do you enjoy drinking shiraz from uh the rhone uh I'm absolutely in absolute love with Rostang,
1: Um, which I'm sure everyone else is. I just can't afford it. Um, oh, great question. Um, great question.
0: I thought you might say the wrong, but I, I was was interested to see if you'd say somewhere else in Australia as well. I was like, oh, I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's where I'd go. That's where I'd go first. If money was an object, I'd go there.
0: Absolutely. Well, I have to, yeah, some of those... Rome Valley Syrahs are uh, life-changing, so I can understand why you'd say that. Well, look, it's been a pleasure um, having you on, Adrian. It's always a pleasure when you're around, and I, I love your honesty. I love hearing you talk about wine. Um, I definitely hope I can get up there soon when, when you're ready to have visitors, um, and I hope that, uh, you know, you stop dreaming about chickens and start dreaming about whole shiny berries with that gorgeous optical sorter that you now have. (laughs) Um, And thank you so much for making the time. I've really enjoyed it and uh, I'm so glad that you, uh, you finally, we finally got you on here.
1: Yeah, thank you. Look, it's been great. Good to talk.
0: It's definitely worth it. Cheers to you, mate. Thank you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.